the Catholic Church and all of the errors of the Catholic Church, the errors in the doctrine. We've spent quite a few weeks on this. Uh, this will be the last week that we're going to spend on it. We're going to move on to some other things next week. But who can tell me some of the false doctrines of the Catholic Church that we've talked about? If you can give them to me in order, that'd be great. Johan, you remember the first one? That the Catholic Church is the only true church. Very good. That is a false doctrine that is promoted by the Catholic Church. What else? Tucker? No. The priesthood. Very good. The priesthood. Uh, the third one. What is the third one, Alex? Nope, that wasn't the third one, but the Pope is one of them. Josh? Tradition is equal to Scripture. Tradition has the same authority as Scripture. And then we talked about the belief about Peter and the Pope, right? We, talked, we spent two weeks on that. And then what was the next thing, the next false doctrine? Mary, Mariolatry, right? Making Mary the idol of, of Mary. And then the next one is what, Emma? Sacraments. Did somebody put it up there already? I figured. Everybody, everybody was too eager on that one. All right, you're so smart. What are the sacraments? What's the first one? Baptism. Alex? What comes after baptism? After, after they're baptized, they are? Josh. Confirmed. Confirmation. Then what's, what's, the, what's the rest of them? Brother Eric? Marriage. That's one of the sacraments. Johan? Uh, okay, holy orders, but that, is, that really has to do with the priesthood. Uh, three more. The Eucharist, which is their mass. And what else? Johan? Penance. And there's one more that we talked about right before marriage. Uh, okay, right along with that, anointing of the sick. But yes, really very close to the same thing. That, that is included in the last rites. Very good. All right. Then we talked about a few more of their false doctrines. What are they? There's only a few more left. Alex? Okay, vain rituals. Images and vain rituals, that was one of them. What else? Sainthood, okay. Prayers to the saints, that was one of them. Uh, two more. Alex? Purgatory. That's what you're trying to say. Purgatory. And then the last one, I'll give it to you. Degrees of sin, right? We're going to talk about two of them tonight. One of them's pretty short. One of them's a little bit longer, but we're going to end with these. And there's, there's probably more things that we could talk about that are actually false doctrines of the Catholic Church. But the first one, number 12, is celibacy. Now, celibacy is, in the fourth century, they, it became law within the Catholic Church that the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church took a vow of celibacy and basically would remain unmarried. Or if they were married... They had to give up that marriage. Let me give you a quote here from, uh, and I've used this a decent amount. Any questions is the name of it, but it was a, it's a Catholic public publication that was used in their missionary work in India. They said this, a married man could become a priest if, besides having the required qualities, he obtained his wife's consent to a separation. And of course, that also applies to the Pope. Um, if a married man was elected, he could not accept the election unless he first secured his wife's consent, his wife's consent to a separation. It would indeed be a worthy sacrifice on the altar of matrimonial faithfulness. Came from the same book. So interesting thing, though, that they literally have to give up their marriage or have never have been married in the first place. But the Catholic Church gives several reasons for that requirement, and we're gonna we're gonna look at them from the Bible about why these are wrong. But I'm gonna give them to you here quickly. Number one, they say that celibacy 
or having never been married or, or, or giving up that marriage, at least not being married, leaves the priest free from that marital responsibility so he can further devote himself to the work of the ministry. Um, or her in the case of nuns, because there are nuns who are not married either. Uh, obviously, they cannot be priests, but they give up marriage and they, you know, they become nuns. They say also that celibacy allows the priest to expose himself to dangers without thought of a family. Now, I don't know how often that happens today, but you can put yourself in danger because you don't have a wife and kids waiting at home for you. Uh, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that was a little bit more uh, um, fitting in the last, you know, before the last hundred years or so. I don't, I, I'm not saying that Catholic priests never get killed, but it's very, very rare anymore. Um, but number three, they say, as a type of Christ in servanthood, the priest or the nun should forsake marriage as a willing sacrifice as Christ did. Well, Christ never got married, and he sacrificed that, and so we ought to be doing the same thing. Number four, celibacy is an example of virtue in a wicked world. I don't know where they get that from. How is it an example of virtue, right? The Bible is very much in favor of marriage. In fact, that's even one of their ordinances, right? Marriage is one of their ordinances. So how, how can it be an example of virtue? I don't know, but that's what they say. Number five, by celibacy, priests and nuns identify with the poor people of the world by voluntary, voluntarily giving up a natural pleasure of life. So th those all, that, that comes from a book called The Theologian, Theologians Answer Your Questions, and that's the reasons they give for celibacy. Now, let's see what the Bible has to say about it. And so we're in Matthew chapter 8. But the first thing I'll say is this. Peter and most of the other apostles were married men. Um, Paul, famously or infamously, I don't know how you want to look at it, was not. And he talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But he says that he was an exception to the rule in not having a wife. He didn't say that you shouldn't have a wife. He was just given some reasons basically why he didn't and why it left him free to do the things that he wanted to do and everything else. But he, was not, he, he certainly wasn't saying that that was something that God gave him or told him to do. Verse, uh, verse cha uh, chapter 8 of verse number 14 uh, in Matthew. So Matthew 8, 14. I had you turn there in Matthew chapter 8. says this, And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. His wife's mother means that Peter had a what? A wife, right? Well, of course he had a mother. He had a mother-in-law. His, his wife's mother was sick, right? Well, Peter's the first pope. He should have known better. He shouldn't have been married. He should have, give that, he should have gave that up so that, that he could fulfill the work of the ministry, right? Well, Peter didn't do that, and neither did very many of the other apostles as well. The second thing that the Bible has to say about that is this. God's standards for church leaders calls for marriage, not celibacy. We're not going to take the time. If you want to turn over there and kind of glance through it real quick, you can. But 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives the qualifications for a pastor, right? So does Titus chapter 1. Uh, both of them say that he should be the husband of one wife, right? It didn't say anything about not being married at all. It's just saying that you should only have one wife, all right? I mean, there is nothing about, but it'd be better if you weren't married. But if you are, then just have one wife. He didn't say anything about that, right? He, the, 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 uh, the standards for church leaders calls for marriage. The Roman Catholic Church has an, it has an evil habit of following traditions that are directly contrary to God's word. And we talked a lot about that already, but, but that's another one of those instances. Number three, marriage is an area of personal freedom before God. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gave instructions about marriage, right? He, talk, he talked a lot about that, and he left the final decision to an individual rather than a direct dictate or direct absolute in the area of whether somebody should be married or not. 
Some people are called to remain unmarried their entire life. Some are, are not called to do that. They're called to be married. It's just a strictly a matter of personal freedom and calling, not something that's dictated by some kind of church law or anything like that. Number four, any teaching that forbids marriage is demonically inspired. Now, let me, let me take you to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're given the qualifications of a pastor, but I think you could say that, that anybody that forbids marriage is demonically inspired to say that, and, and I, I believe that this, what this passage says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse number 1, now the Spirit speaketh expressly, get this, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So what he's getting ready to talk about is giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And then he starts talking about things that they're giving heed to those things in. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. To me, it seems pretty obvious that if you're forbidding to marry, you're, you're pretty much giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And here, that's what the Catholic Church is doing. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. The fifth thing that I will say about this from the Word of God is that marriage is as holy as virginity, right? They talk about, well, this is something that, you know, it's a, it's a virtue. They remain unmarried. It's a virtue, it's, it's a virtue thing in a, in a wicked world. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 4, the Bible says, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Which, by the way, there's a whole lot more of those within the Catholic Church priesthood than there are people who are married that are, you know, that are, that are uh, defiled because they're married. Marriage is honorable in all things. It's, it's not more virtuous to remain unmarried, which is what they say. Marriage is holy, marriage is honorable. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the passage that I've referenced a couple different times, but number 6, I'll say this. To forbid marriage is to put believers in danger of falling into immorality. I'm not saying that there's not some people who are strong enough to, to handle not being married, but Paul gives this as a warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 2, he says this, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Verse number 9, But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. Verse 36 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need to so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not. Let them marry. So, to forbid marriage really is to put believers in danger of falling into that immorality. Catholic, Catholic history is filled with, with chronicles of, of priests and nuns and even popes who lived in adultery and fornication. And I think one of the reasons for that is that forced celibacy. Uh, I mean, I don't need to go into all the stuff that, that you hear that are accusations against the Catholic Church uh, with these priests and, and um, all the, you know, the people who are living in the same compound and everything else. But there are lots of horrible horrible uh, accusations against a lot of these priests. That's not more virtuous, right? In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. Number seven, and we'll stay there, in, stay there in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, but number seven, the Bible commands married couples to live together and not forsake the marriage bed. And 1 Corinthians chapter seven, and verse three, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except to be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. 
But, but Rome demands that married men and women disobey God's word in, the, in this matter if they desire to be a church leader. If you're already married, you need to separate. If you're not married, you don't get married. Uh, celibacy is it's one, of the, it's one of the small things because it's not something that's promoted throughout the entire church. It's promoted for nuns and priests and, and, and the people who want to be in church leadership. But nowhere do we find that idea in the Bible, especially the way that they promote it. Which brings us then to the 13th and the last one that we're going to talk about, and I've mentioned this a couple times, I've referenced it a couple times, but I want to actually talk about it now, and that is the Apocrypha. Uh, you can turn over to Romans chapter 3. We'll get there in a, in a couple minutes, but what I want to, what I, I, the Apocrypha really, and I'm not going to say that the, the Apocrypha is their Bible. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of groups that we've talked about, like the Mormons, who have the Book of Mormon and use that as their final authority. Uh, Christian science has their own book that they use as their final authority. They're not using the Apocrypha as their final authority necessarily. If you were to ask a, a Catholic uh, what is their final authority, they would say the Word of God. What they do, though, is they add the Apocrypha into the Word of God. So the 15 books that the Roman Catholic Church adds to the Bible and pronounces as equally inspired is the Apocrypha. Now, the word Apocrypha comes from the Greek word. It's actually spelled differently, but it's pronounced the same way. Apocrypha means hidden things and, and historically identified writings that had obscure origin or were heretical. Uh, that's what that word apocrypha means. In, in the Talmud, which is the Jewish Bible, the Jewish rabbis use that word to describe works that were not part of canonical scripture. And when I say that, we talk about the, the, the 66 books of the Bible are, is the canon. Those are, those are books that have been canonized. And when we talk about the Bible, we're going to do a series on the Bible a little ways down the road. We'll talk about that, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that tonight. But they were not part of the canonical scriptures. But the, that term, Apocrypha, has, has come to be applied particularly to these 15 books that are added to the Roman Catholic Bible, but ordinarily are rejected by anybody who is a non-Catholic. Protestants, which we don't fit into that Protestant category, but Baptists, everybody else, pretty much rejects the Apocrypha. But they were written during the 200 years um, preceding and 100 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. But essentially, they were written in that, so there's a gap of about 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, where it's, it's called the silent years. God did not speak to his people because they had fallen so far away from him and and uh, everything else. And so at the end of the Old Testament, beginning of the New Testament, there was about 400 years. And for the most part, these 15 books were written during that, that, that time period. But the Roman Catholic Church considers most of these writings to be part of the inspired scripture. If you would put the list of the books up there for me, just because I'm going to read through them very quickly, but you have 1st and 2nd Esdras, Prayer of Manasseh, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, the additions to the book of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, or it's also called the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach, uh, Barak, the letter of Jeremiah, the prayer of Azariah, and the song of the three young men, Susanna, and then the last one is Bella and the dragon. But those make up the 15 books that are part of the Apocrypha. And not that there's a separate section in between the Old Testament and the New Testament that is the Apocrypha, although some of them do it that way. The Catholic Bible intersperses them throughout. Uh, particularly the Old Testament. But in 1546, so think about this, all right? The Bible was finished about 100 years after the, the death of Jesus Christ, completely finished. This is 1546 now. 
The Council of Trent decreed that the canon of the Old Testament should include those 15 books, but they made an exception for two of them, and they were not included. So really, there are only 13 books that are included in the Catholic Bible. The prayer of Azariah and First and Second Esdras were not included in, in the books that they said were on par with Scripture. Uh, interestingly, Second Esdras was denied because it, it really it, it has an emphatic denial of uh, the value of prayer for the dead. Now, obviously, that's something that the Catholics do. And in 2 Ezra, chapter 7, verse 105, it's a very emphatic denial of the fact that prayer for the dead actually does anything. So they, they rejected that book. And uh, basically, this decree, the Council of Trent, decreed uh, anathema, or accursed, to anyone who, quote, does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid books in their entirety and with all their parts. But the, the Council of Trent, to give you a, a, just a very, very brief uh, history of what the Council of Trent was, it, it was an attempt by the Catholic Church to counteract the Protestant Reformation. Remember when this was. This was 1546. When is the start of the Protestant Reformation considered to be? Do you remember what year? 1517. Yeah, that's when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Catholic Church, and that started the whole process of the split with the Catholic Church, right? That was 1517. So this is 1546. On the grand scheme of things, 30 years later sounds like a long time, but it's really not. By that time, the Protestant Reformation had really started gaining steam, and so the Catholic Church said, we've got to do something to stop this Protestant Reformation. Way too many people are uh, becoming enlightened, so to speak. Way too many people are leaving the Catholic Church. We've got to do something to stop it, and that's what the Council of Trent was. So by adding the Apocrypha, and that's what the Council of Trent did, but by adding the Apocrypha to the canon of Scripture, the Catholic Church, in effect, rendered the Bible impotent. Here's, here's, what, um, uh, here's what was said about that. The books named in the decree of Trent include the Apocryphal Old Testament books and placed unwritten traditions of the church upon equal, uh, equal footing with Holy Scriptures as approved of Christ or of the Holy Spirit. Any appeal to Holy Scriptures as expressing the supreme will of God was thereafter useless in the Latin church. So the Apocrypha has a variety of content. And we're, we're going to talk about this, especially when we get to the conclusion. I'm going to kind of, kind of bring it all together for you and, and just kind of give you some things that... I believe about the Apocrypha, but uh, some are histories that contain events of the Jews, some are uh, short sayings that are similar to Proverbs, some are sermons, kind of, uh, uh, others are novels, uh, some are fictitious, completely fictitious, uh, and meant to be that way. Um, one of them claims to be symbolic prophecy. So there's lots of different, I mean, it's not, it's not, just, it's not just a history, it's not just a um, uh, revelation. It's not, it's not, they're not any one of those things. They're all different books written by different people at different times within that 400 or so year period. So uh, it's not like somebody sat down and wrote the Apocrypha. Uh, it's written the same way that the, the Bible was written, but those, these were all books that were rejected and for very specific reasons. So why reject the Apocrypha? That's what I want to talk about tonight. And we're going to look at some verses along with that. We're going to try not to be too long with this, but I think it's very important to understand why, why God's people reject the apocryphal books. Um, it's also called the deuterocanonical books, but they're, they're rejected from the canon of inspired scripture. Now, what's happened as we've, as we've, 
as the churches have gotten more ecumenical, and that, ecumenis, that ecumenism really means a coming together. So what's happening is they're trying to put uh, Methodist and Presbyterian and Lutheran and Catholic and everybody together. We all serve the same Lord. We all get saved the same way, so we should all come together. That's what they say. And so because of these ecumenical activities that are involving the Roman Catholic Church, there's an increased tendency for publishers to put the Apocrypha in the Bibles that they're publishing and in the different versions of the Bible that they're publishing. That's being done by the United Bible Societies in a lot of languages. So if, if, if it's something that we're going to stand up against, then why, why, reject? why reject the Apocrypha? Let me give you some reasons here, and you can write these down if you want to. I think it'll be helpful if you do. Um, certainly you don't have to. But number one is this. They're not included in the original Hebrew Old Testament that's preserved by the Jews. Now, in Romans chapter 3, the Bible says this, verse number 1. What, did, what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, this is telling us that God used the Jews to preserve his word, right? They had the Old Testament. The Jews' Old Testament, I mean, obviously, Jesus Christ did away with the law, but that was their, that was their scripture before Jesus came. So we know that he guided them in the rejection of the apocryphal books, from the canon of Scripture, because the Jews rejected it. It was there. They could have put it in there. They didn't. The accepted apocryphal books. If, if, you, if you compare the size of the apocryphal books to the New Testament, the, the 13 that are accepted make up about the, the same amount in volume as two-thirds of the New Testament. If you take all 15 of the apocryphal books, it's about 84% of the New Testament. So we're talking about a lot of writing. We're talking about a lot of things that are, that are being added. And since the apocryphal books are pre-Christ, they were written before Jesus Christ came, the effect that has is to give greater prominence to the Old Testament and, and therefore to Jewish life and thought and to give less importance to the New Testament. Um, the Hebrew Old Testament was completed some 400 years before the time of Jesus Christ. In the second century B.C., and, and this is... This is getting into, into something that, that we could really spend a long time talking about, and I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to try to give it to you very, very briefly. If you want to go look it up later, maybe these are terms that you've actually heard before as well. But um, in the second century B.C., so 200 years before Christ, a Greek translation by Hebrew scholars was made of the Old Testament in Alexandria, Egypt. It was called the Septuagint. Maybe you recognize the name Septuagint. It was called the Septuagint because there were 70 translators that helped translate the Bible from the original Hebrew into Greek. Now, you remember, obviously, the Hebrews, the Jews, right? And that's the language that the Old Testament was written in. But most of them, Greek was the known language of the day. And so that probably, for a lot of them, would have been more of a common tongue than even the Hebrew. So these Hebrew scholars translated the Bible into Greek. This is the Septuagint. Now, there was an important difference between the Greek translation and the Hebrew canon since the Septuagint contained a dozen or more of these apocryphal books interspersed among the books of the Hebrew Bible. But the thing is, of all the Septuagints that were printed, not all of them contained the exact same apocryphal books, which gives you the indication that even they couldn't agree on which ones were Scripture and which ones were not. Some of them had some of the apocryphal books, some of them had others, some of them had the same ones, some of them had different ones. So they couldn't even agree on which ones were authoritative and should belong in the Bible. So the Septuagint translation came into, in, into general use in Palestine, 
And then uh, that was the popular version at the time of Jesus Christ. But the, pa the Palestinian Jews never accepted the apocryphal editions. And, and of course, Protestants only accept the 39 books of the Old Testament with none of the uh, apocrypha in it either. So um, I think that's a pretty, it's a pretty solid argument that, that they're not included in, in any of the Hebrew Old Testament uh, Bibles that were preserved by the Jews whom God gave that uh, responsibility to. Second thing is this, and I think this, maybe of all of the ones that we're going to talk about, this one may be the biggest argument to me, but it's this. There's no record that Jesus Christ or any of the apostles ever quoted from the apocryphal books or that they made any reference to them, but they undoubtedly knew about them, right? The Septuagint had already been written. The Septuagint, a lot of the versions of, versions of the Septuagint included the apocryphal books in them. Jesus Christ would have known about the apocrypha. The disciples would have known about the apocrypha, but they never said anything. They never quoted from any of the apocryphal books. Some, some people claim to find allusions to the apocrypha in certain New Testament passages. I have a list of those passages there, but it's not a proven fact. An allusion is definitely not a, a direct quote from them, right? The supposed allusions to the Apocrypha in the New Testament very easily could be allusions to other Old Testament histories or, or facts that were given directly by Revelation or any of those other things. So there are things that may allude to things in the Apocrypha, but by no stretch are they direct allusions to them or direct quotes at the very least. So it's very possible that the New Testament writers were familiar with the Apocrypha, but it's very plain that they did not directly quote from those books, and there's a reason why. Get this. There are, in the New Testament, 260 direct quotations from the Old Testament, and there are 370 allusions to passages in the Old Testament. But among every one of those, not a single reference, either by Christ or by any of the uh, apostles, to the apocryphal writings. None of them. They quote from every major book in the Old Testament and all but four of the minor books in the Old Testament. Uh, that's certainly a stamp of approval on the Jewish Old Testament, right? And not one of those is an allusion or a quote about the, uh, from the Apocrypha. Jesus said in John chapter 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken, right? He quoted the scriptures as authoritative. So the reason that neither he nor the apostles ever one time referenced the Apocryphal books it's pretty obvious. They did not regard those books as scripture, and they didn't intend that those legendary books would become part of the Bible. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will sometimes accuse the Protestants of having, quote, cut those books out of the Bible. But, but I think that the record is pretty clear that if anybody cut the books out of the Bible, it was Jesus. He never mentioned it. Not one of them in any quotation. The disciples did not mention them. The apostles did not mention them at all. Here's another thing then, number three, why we would reject the Apocrypha. They were not written in the Hebrew language, which was alone used by the inspired historians and prophets of the Old Testament. Apocryphal books were written in Greek. Um, the language that was, that was spoken in Palestine in the days of Jesus Christ was not Hebrew, it was Aramaic. And Greek was one of the spoken languages of Palestine at that time, bilingual Christians who would have spoken Aramaic and Greek probably were in the true church from the very beginning. And this is something that you don't think about very often, right? What language did they speak? And, and you know, would they have known the Hebrew language of the Old Testament? Some of them probably didn't. 
um, unless they were very devout Jews, then they, then they were required to memorize the books of, you know, uh, of the law and so on. But uh, there was a lot of them in that, in that time period who probably only spoke Aramaic and Greek. Uh, but it's also very possible that, that Jesus Christ himself could speak Greek and Aramaic. You think about it. I mean, we always think about Hebrew because Jesus came in the Old Testament was the, was the book that he referred to because the New Testament had not been written at that point. But Jesus lived in that contemporary time, and in Palestine, they spoke Aramaic and Greek. So there's a very good possibility that Jesus spoke those languages as well. Uh, as well. The New Testament books were written in Greek. So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek. Um, but we find that, that while there were some of the quotations from the Old Testament that reflected the direct use of the Hebrew, the, the prevailing practice was to quote from the Greek of the Septuagint. Now, having said that, the writers of the New Testament were undoubtedly familiar with the the apocryphal books, and would have made some quotations from them if they had regarded them as scripture. So at the time of Christ, there were two versions of the Old Testament in Palestine. You had the, the more liberal Alexandrian Septuagint, because obviously they included all of the apocryphal books in there. Um, and then, uh, of course, those books would have been included in Greek. And you had the more conservative Hebrew version, uh, which included only the canonical books of the Jews, the 39 books that we know as the Old Testament. So the Roman Catholic Bible follows this, the Alexandrian text, while the Protestant Bible follows the Hebrew version. So I think it's very significant that, the G, that Jesus and the New Testament writers did not um, consider the apocryphal books to be canonical, but they accepted the Palestinian version of the Old Testament, which would have been in Hebrew. And, and that version did not include any of the apocryphal books. Number four. They were not received as inspired scripture by the churches during the first four centuries after Jesus Christ. Um, maybe you've heard of Josephus. Josephus was a very notable Jewish historian. In fact, I have a, I have a, a book of all of the works of Josephus. It's, uh, it's very thick and, and the words are very small. Um, but Josephus was a Jewish historian. And so he filled in a lot of blank spaces where there are things that are not known about what happened between this time, what happened here, what happened there, what happened to these people that the Bible talks about that we only get a little story about and then you never hear about them. Now, some of them, that's all we get. But Josephus was a writer during that time. He was a historian. He never claimed to be um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He never claimed to be um, inspired uh, or that his writings were inspired by God, but he wrote about history. And so Josephus uh, about 90 A.D. gave a list of the books of the Jewish law and prophets, and he didn't include any of the apocryphal books. Now, this is 90 A.D. Some of the books were not even written completely in the New Testament. Other Jewish sources supported Josephus. Get this. The apocryphal was rejected by Origen. Origen is, is generally acknowledged to have been the most learned man in the early church before Augustine. He rejected it. Tertullian, and some of these are names that you're going to recognize, hopefully at least, from, from um, early church history, but he was an outstanding scholar of the third century. He rejected the Apocrypha. Uh, Athanasius, he was, the, he was the champion of orthodoxy at the Council of Nicaea. He rejected the Apocrypha. Even Jerome. Now, here's another one where you could really get off into the weeds with this. Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate or, or the, the Bible into Latin, which was the common language of the day for the Catholic Church. Okay? The Latin Vulgate became the Bible of the Catholic Church, and, and the Catholic 
still use that Bible today as their source of authority. Now, it's been translated into English and everything else, but Jerome was the one who translated that version into Latin so it could be in the common tongue and the common vernacular so the common person could read it. Jerome rejected the Apocrypha. He's the writer of the Catholic Bible, essentially. Now, Jerome emphatically said that the Apocrypha was not part of the Bible, but against his better judgment, he actually let a couple of his friends who were Catholic priests convince him that Tobit and um, uh, Judith were actually um, inspired scripture. Now, uh, Jerome, for 40 years of his life, he took 40 years to translate the Bible into Latin for the common people. 40 years. And it said that he sat down in one sitting and translated Judith and, and, and uh, in one sitting translated Tobit because he, didn't, he wasn't convinced that they were Scripture, but he allowed himself to be convinced that they were. So he didn't put near the effort into it in, in, as far as the translation or any of those other things, but then those were included as part of this Latin Vulgate. So um, the early church fathers um, and the early churches did not accept the Apocrypha as inspired scripture. Number five, even within the Roman Catholic Church, the canonicity of the Apocrypha has been divided. Of course, Jerome denied it categorically. Uh, a lot of popes and cardinals have been back and forth about which ones are inspired, which ones are not, which ones belong in the Bible, which ones do not. Some pope would come along and say, this one belongs in. The next pope would come along and say, no, that one doesn't, this one doesn't. So there have been divisions amongst the Catholic Church themselves about which ones are actually inspired. But the, the real reason for the addition of the apocryphal books to the Bible has everything to do with the Reformation. And I already mentioned this, but when the, when the Reformers started really speaking out against the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church felt like they had to have something that they could use as authoritative. And in the apocryphal books, you do find uh, a lot of their ideas that they promote within the Catholic Church backed up in some of those books. And so they had to have some kind of scripture to back up prayers for the dead. They had to have some kind of scripture to back up the idea of purgatory. And that was the main one, by the way, that a lot of the reformers were preaching against and speaking out against. And they felt like in 2 Maccabees, they found the verse that would give them what they needed to be able to prove that purgatory was in the Bible. So, of course, they're going to add it into the Bible. Now, essentially, they started to add these books to give support to those doctrines that had been passed down through tradition and through papal decrees, and now they found support in some of these books, and so, of course, they're going to add them into uh, the Scripture. Number six, the apocryphal books. Uh, why do we reject the apocrypha? They don't claim to be the inspired Word of God. Unlike what we find in the inspired scriptures, uh, the apocryphal books don't have any statements like, thus saith the Lord, right? We find that all over in the Bible. Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Uh, these are the words of God. You don't see that anywhere, right? Um, none of the writers claim inspiration for their work. In fact, some of them explicitly disclaim that it was uh, inspired by God. They had, they had nothing essential to the records of God's dealing with his people as it was recorded in the Old Testament and, and, and nothing to the Christian gospel as it's recorded in the New Testament. Number seven is this. They contain teachings that are contrary to biblical books. And we could spend, we could spend a, a decent amount of time on this. We won't do that tonight. But 2 Maccabees teaches praying to the dead and making offerings to atone for the sins of the dead. This is what it says in 2 Maccabees chapter 12 and verse 43 through 45. He also took up a collection and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. 
For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen asleep would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. Well, that sounds pretty strong, like it's prayers for the dead work, right? And that's, that's why they use it. Second Maccabees also really contains the heresy that, that deceased saints are interceding in heaven for those on earth. We don't find that in the Bible. We find it in 2 Maccabees, chapter 15, verse 11 through 14. But teachings that are contrary to biblical books. There's lots of examples. Uh, those are just a couple. Number eight, and this is, this is maybe a smaller one, but in quality and style, the apocryphal books are not on the level of the Bible's writings. If you just read through the apocrypha quickly, um, you'll find the fact that, that you know, here we're touching the uninspired writings of men apart from divine inspiration. You can tell a big difference in the apocryphal writings versus the writings of the Bible. Um, these writings in the apocryphal were not God-breathed, as the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. He says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration means God-breathed. So there's not in the apocryphal books that supernatural depth and breadth of thought and, and that rich complexity just simple language, and it, it, it goes beyond the mere writings of men when you, when you get to the actual Word of God. Number nine, there are numerous errors in the apocryphal books, and I don't mean things that oppose Scripture, but just errors. Um, the book of Tobit has an account uh, of a supposed high and good angel of God who lies and teaches the use of magic. Well, that's contrary to the Word of God, obviously. Tobit 5.4 we're told about an angel whose name is Raphael, but later he lies to Tobit and he claims to be Azarias, the son of the great Ananias, one of your relatives, which, as you're reading through the book, you find out is, is a direct lie. But the angel professes to be, quote, one of the seven holy angels who present the prayers of the saints and enter into the presence of the glory of the Holy One. But we don't find that in the Bible, right? No angels bring our request to God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? Not seven high angels, nothing like that. Uh, yet he not only lies about his name, but then he teaches magic. Get this, it says this in Tobit chapter 6. Then the angel said to him, cut open the fish and take the heart and liver and gall and put them away safely. Then the young man said to the angel, brother Azarias, of what use is the liver and heart and gall of the fish? He replied, as for the heart and the liver, if a demon or evil spirit gives trouble to anyone, you make a smoke from these before the man or woman, and that person will never be troubled again. As for the gall, anoint with it a man who has white films in his eyes, and he'll be cured. Well, that's, magic. that's magic, right? This, the smoke ascending is going to drive away the evil spirits. I mean, again, we don't, we don't, the Bible clearly condemns magical practices, right? And we've got lots of verses in the Bible that will back that up. I'm not going to take the time to do that tonight. Also in the book of Tobit, it, it teaches the false doctrine of salvation through works. Um, it says this in Tobit 12, verse 9, For almsgiving delivers from death, and it will purge away every sin. Tobit 14, 11, So now, my children, consider what almsgiving accomplishes and how righteousness delivers. Lots of things. The book of Judith has, has, an, has the account of, uh, of how a supposedly godly widow destroyed one of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's generals through deceit and sexual offers. The book of Barak is supposedly written by a man whose same name, but claims to be a secretary of Jeremiah. The problem with that is uh, he quotes the book of Daniel. 
Jeremiah was written well before the book of Daniel because Jeremiah was written before they went into Babylonian captivity. They were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, and then Daniel wrote uh, his account at the end of that captivity. There's no way this guy could have been the secretary to Jeremiah and have been able to quote from Daniel at the same time. So just different things like that. But let me give you some conclusions, and, and really what, I, what I'm going to do, turn over to Psalm 12. And uh, really what I'm going to do is read you a few quotes that I found that I, th that I think are actually very good summaries of the apocryphal books. But the apocryphal books, I think, are useful in giving a history of Judaism as it existed at the close of the Old Testament. Um, we don't know a lot about it because there is nothing written in the Word of God that gives us anything between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, Right. Um, but in that regard, I would say that they're on par with the writings of Josephus or Philo or any of those other authors at that time. They don't give a continuous history, but particularly in First and Second Maccabees, they do give some important insight into Jewish history. Um, Lorraine Botner, uh, has, he, he wrote an entire book on Roman Catholicism. And, and if, you, if you want a good resource, that's a great book. Um, Roman Catholicism is the name of the book. And he, he's done a great job with it and just goes through everything. But he said this, most of the books have to be classified as religious novels, pious fiction, abounding in repetitions and trivial details, which are of little interest to the average reader. They contain doctrines that are unscriptural and stories that are fantastic and incredible. The colorful tale of Tobit, for instance, is clearly fictitious, written by a pious Jew about 190 to 170 B.C., and intended to provide religious and moral instruction in the form of an adventure story. Judith, another popular story, is also clearly fictitious. Ecclesiasticus has historical value in that it pictures many aspects of the Judaism of Palestine during the 2nd century B.C. But you see what he's saying? It's just, it's, it's, I think it's a great synopsis of it. They have some historical value here and there where they, you know, where they... Uh, line up with other historical accounts that were written during the time, but they're not scripture. They don't, they don't have any scriptural value to them. Let me end with a couple of quotes in, in answer to the question of why these apocryphal books were never considered to be a part of the Word of God by the Jews. This one comes from a book called Revelation and the Bible, a guy named Dr. Edward J. Young. I believe, he, I believe he was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He wrote this, The answer must be that these books were never regarded as divinely inspired. Both Judith and Tobit contain historical, chronological, and geographical errors. The books justify falsehood and deception and make salvation to depend upon works of merit. Almsgiving, for example, is said to deliver from death. Judith lives a life of falsehood and deception in which she is represented as assisted by God. Ecclesiasticus and the wisdom of Solomon inculcate a morality based on expediency. Wisdom teaches the creation of the world out of preexistent matter. Ecclesiasticus teaches that giving of alms makes atonement for sin. In 1 Maccabees, there are historical and geographical errors. This is not to deny many fine and commendable things in the Apocrypha, but the books nevertheless show themselves at points to be at variance with divinely revealed truth. They were consequently never adopted by the Jews as canonical. I think it's another great synopsis. One more. This is uh, Dr. Alan McRae. He's a professor of Old Testament at Faith Theological Seminary. He said this. I don't think he actually wrote it. I think this was in something that he said about the, uh, the Apocrypha. The so-called apocryphal books of the Old Testament are books written by godly Jews and containing only their fallible human ideas. They are in no sense the Word of God, nor can they ever become the Word of God. The Jews did not consider these books as part of the Word of God. Jesus Christ did not set his seal upon them as he did upon the actual books of the Old Testament. They're never quoted in the New Testament. There is no evidence that any of the apostles ever considered any of the books 
as, in any sense, a part of the Word of God. It is true that many people in the Middle Ages became confused and thought that some of these books were part of the Word of God. This is because they were included in copies of the Vulgate. However, the man who translated the Vulgate into Latin from the original Hebrew never intended that they should be so included. Jerome, the learned translator of the Vulgate, wrote an introduction in which he strongly and clearly expressed his belief that only the books that are today included in our Old Testament belonged in the Bible and that the so-called Apocrypha are in no sense a portion of God's Word. I think that's pretty clear. But let, let me look at this one last verse with you, Psalm 12. I think that the Apocryphal books, maybe you could say that they are, they might be some noteworthy examples of ancient fiction, but they have no place among the seven times purified Word of God. The Bible says in Psalm 12, verse number 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God's promise to preserve his word, and what we have in the, in the Bible is the preserved word of God. 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. The word of God. Nothing, nothing in the Apocrypha uh, gives any indication that they should have been or should be in the, the canonized scripture of the Bible. And hopefully that's a help to you. Now, that's, that, that concludes what we're going to talk about with Catholicism. We probably could take a whole other week to give a, an entire uh, conclusion and wrap everything up. I'm not going to do that. Um, but what I am going to get into next week that I think will be a help to us is some of the Protestant mainline denominations. Um, we've been talking about cults for a long time. We hit a bunch of those with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and, and so many of these others. And, and uh, honestly, I, I really think that, that it wouldn't be a stretch to include Catholicism in the cults. It really is. You've got a following of people that has nothing to do with, with what we find in the Bible. It's all made up by men, led by men, and passed on by tradition. And people have just bought into it by the billions, and, and so it's accepted. But um, Catholicism is not generally considered to be a cult. But if you wanted to consider it a cult, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with you. But we're going to talk about some of the Protestant mainline denominations. I know that you've heard of the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the... Uh, the Lutherans and all of those things, but could you say anything about what they believe? Do you know what they believe and how it differs from what we believe? So that's what we're going to talk about going forward, all right? We'll spend a few weeks on those. But let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you that we have the truth of the Word of God. I pray that it would be helpful to us as we seek to win people to Jesus Christ. I, I pray that you'd help us to know the truth and that we'd be able to use the truth to help set men free. God, we thank you so much for how good you are to us and for allowing us to have the, the, the message of salvation, for saving me. I thank you so much for that, God. I, I pray that you'd help us to be witnesses for you. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.